This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, bringing you news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by educational grants from Eli Lilly, Merck Sharp and Dome Corp and Novo Nordisk AS, who have had no influence on the content or the choice of faculty. I'm Emma. And I'm Liam. Last episode, we put the spotlight on GLP-1 receptor agonists, and this week we're turning to SGLT2 inhibitors. We'll discuss the multifactorial effects and adverse events to be aware of before we're joined by Dr. Kevin Fernando, who is a GP and Scottish lead for the UK Primary Care Diabetes Society. Dr. Fernando's disclosures are available in the episode notes, along with references for the data and guidelines we're discussing today. SGLT2 transporters are found in the cell membranes in the proximal tubule epithelium of the kidney and transport glucose and sodium into the cell. They account for around 90% of the reabsorption of glucose from the glomerular ultrafiltrate. SGLT2 inhibitors, therefore, significantly reduce the reabsorption of glucose and sodium into the blood, meaning they are instead excreted via the urine. This means that blood glucose levels are reduced which can be observed through a reduction in HbA1c. In the setting of placebo-controlled studies, this has typically been around minus 0.6%. SGLT2 inhibitors are also associated with body rate reduction of around 1.5 and 2 kilos and a reduction in systolic blood pressure of around 3 to 4 millimetres of mercury. Cardiovascular outcomes trials in recent years have identified significant protective effects against outcomes including hospitalisation for heart failure, cardiovascular disease events consisting of cardiovascular mortality, myocardial infarction and stroke, as well as progression of chronic kidney disease. This was first identified in the Empereg outcome study of empagliflozin. Although it was designed to demonstrate cardiovascular safety by testing for non-inferiority compared to placebo, The study found that empagliflozin was superior and reduced the composite outcome of myocardial infarction, stroke and cardiovascular death, or MACE, by 14% and cardiovascular death by 38%. A similar effect on MACE was confirmed for canagliflozin in the CANVAS programme with a 14% reduction. The Declare TIMI 58 study investigated dapagliflozin in a study population that included fewer people with cardiovascular disease and found that while there was no reduction in MACE, there was a 17% reduction in cardiovascular death or hospitalisation for heart failure, and there was also a 24% reduction in renal events. The VERTA-CV trial of vertigliflozin was an outlier of this group in that it found vertigliflozin to be non-inferior for MACE but it did not meet significance for superiority. Similarly, the other secondary endpoints were deemed non-significant, so further statistical testing of other outcomes was not conducted due to the hierarchical testing procedure. However, the trial did observe a non-significant 30% reduction in hospitalisation for heart failure. The Credence trial investigated canagliflozin in a study population with nephropathy and was halted early when a risk reduction of 30% was identified for the primary composite outcome of end-stage kidney disease, a doubling of serum creatinine, or death from renal or cardiovascular causes. 
These are summarised in a 2021 meta-analysis by Darren Maguire and colleagues. Since then, trials such as DAPA-CKD and Emperor Reduced have investigated the effect of SGLT2 inhibitors on heart failure and renal outcomes in people without diabetes and have concluded that these effects are independent of diabetes status. Regarding adverse events, the most frequently reported are genitourinary infections. Others include volume depletion and hypertension, particularly in the elderly. The risk of hypoglycemia is relatively low, though this does increase if given alongside a sulfonylurea or insulin. In such cases, a dose reduction in the insulin or sulfonylurea may be needed to reduce the risk of hypoglycemia. However, insulin dose reductions can increase the risk of another rare adverse event, diabetic ketoacidosis. So how does this translate to clinical practice? We're joined today by Kevin Fernando, who is a GP partner with a special interest in diabetes and is Scottish lead for the UK Primary Care Diabetes Society. Welcome back, Dr. Fernando. Thanks very much for joining us again. So firstly, considering the multifactorial effects of this class, are there particular patient presentations who'd benefit from an SGLT2 inhibitor over other classes? So very much over the last few years, research has shown us the multifactorial benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors, atherosclerotic cardiovascular benefits, heart failure benefits, and also renal benefits too. So that's really driven a a change in how we approach the management of type 2 diabetes and and coexisting comorbidities in primary and indeed secondary care. And and I think the best illustrated uh, is the the recently updated, updated during 2019, uh, uh, consensus statement from the ADA and the ESD, the American Diabetes Association and the European Association for the Study of Diabetes. They gave us a clear steer when looking at that person with type 2 diabetes. Uh, We should obviously consider the glycemia, but also look for any significant comorbidities such as atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, heart failure, and CKD. And what it specifically recommends, if uh, your patient has a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes and coexisting heart failure or CKD, we should preferentially consider the use of an SGLT2 inhibitor with proven heart failure benefits or proven CKD benefits. So that's very much a change in approach to how we manage type 2 diabetes in primary care. Consider the glycemia, absolutely, that protects against microvascular disease and to a lesser extent macrovascular disease, but also consider coexisting comorbidities as well. I see. And looking at people without additional considerations and who simply have a need for glycemic control, is it worth considering an SGLT2 inhibitor in these patients? Whilst a lot of the narrative over the years have been uh, around the extra glycemic benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors, we mustn't forget they are potent glucose-lowering agents in their own right. We've been using SGLT2 inhibitors in primary care in the UK now for for nearly 10 years, uh, and they were a really useful addition to our toolbox uh, 10 years ago because of their potent glucose-lowering properties and also secondary benefits of weight reduction and uh, in a small amount of blood pressure reduction too. So absolutely, uh, in their own right, we should be considering them preferentially as options uh, purely for their glucose-lowering effects. And in fact, SGLT2 inhibitors, more often than not, are my go-to add-on therapy to metformin for the majority, really, of my patients living with type 2 diabetes. 
However, we should be aware uh, as we uh, progress to, to prescribe SGLT2 inhibitors at lower EGFRs, we should be aware the glucose-lowering effects of SGLT2 inhibitors are diminished once EGFR starts dropping below 60 and again dropping below 45. So in these stages, what we need to do is consider adding in an additional glucose-lowering agent, maybe a glyptin, for example. Now, we should be clear here, though, we're not worried about the prospect of acute kidney injury or similar side effects if we're using SGLT2 inhibitors below an EGFR of 60 or 45, quite the opposite, in fact. Uh, what it is, is that for SGLT2 inhibitors to work, we need an adequate glomerular filtration rate. And that's how the mode of action works for this class of drug, those SGLT2 transporters found in the renal tubules. So that's why at these lower EGFR values, we don't get the same glucose lowering effect. And that's why we might need to consider an additional glucose lowering medication. But absolutely, we should be considering SGLT2 inhibitors as one of the key tools in our toolbox uh, in terms of glucose lowering for our patients living with type 2 diabetes. And conversely, are there any groups of patients who'd avoid giving an SGLT2 inhibitor? Over the years, again, we've been hearing about uh, a lot about the huge benefits of the SGLT2 class of therapy across the cardiovascular domains, the renal domains, uh, and of course, the glucose lowering domains. But we've got to remember, no drug is without harm. We need to balance all these uh, compelling benefits against uh, particular harms. And one of the, the, the rare but uh, definite side effects of SGLT2 inhibitors is DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis. It's a rare, rare adverse effect. We're talking of one in a thousand to one in 10,000 or even less. But nevertheless, it is something we should be aware of, particularly in the context of acute illness, acute dehydrating illness. There are some factors that predispose to a risk of uh, DKA with an SGLT2 inhibitor. So in particular, my patients living with type 2 diabetes uh, with a history of DKA, I think that would be a, class, a group of individuals I would avoid using SGLT2 inhibitors, again, on an individual basis. Um, if my patients are malnourished or at risk of dehydration, again, I would tend to avoid SGLT2 inhibitors. SGLT2, my patients on SGLT2 inhibitors who are on long-term steroids, it's not contraindicated, but that also increases their risk of DKA as well. And certainly my patients with very long-standing type 2 diabetes who are insulopenic, uh, who really need insulin rather than another oral therapy, they are also at risk of DKA. So again, that risk-benefit ratio may not be so favorable for, for, for those individuals. So there are certain groups of individuals where we do need to be more aware of that risk-benefit ratio of SGLT2 inhibitors. But I stand by what I said previously. I think for the majority of our patients in primary care, the benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors do outweigh the risks. And that brings me on to the next question, which is what advice do you give to patients to manage adverse events associated with SGLT2 inhibitors? So SGLT2 inhibitors work in an entirely insulin-independent mode of action through the kidneys. Uh, they block the SGLT2 co-transporter uh, and prevent the reabsorption of glucose from the urine back into the circulation. So that's how it exerts its glucose-lowering effect. But if you're passing glucose in the urine, that draws water too. So one of the main side effects of SGLT2 inhibitors are uh, urinary frequency 
and also mycotic genital infections, balanitis type infections in men and thrush-like infections in women. So these are, are common, but tend to settle with time. So of course, forewarning individuals about these side effects is very useful. Um, on average, studies suggest individuals will, will uh, pass urine one extra time per day compared to someone not on an SGLT2 inhibitor. So, of course, if you've got someone with a background of urinary frequency of overactive bladder, it may not be the ideal class of drug. If your patients do develop a mycotic genital infection, we would treat that as we would do normally in primary care. So uh, topical clotrimazole um, or perhaps oral um, um, or, or, or oral fluconazole in most significant uh, mycotic genital infections. And again, they tend to settle with usual treatment and tend not to occur. UTIs were originally thought, urinary tract infections were originally thought to be an issue um, uh, highlighted in some of the early SGLT2 studies, but that wasn't really borne out in subsequent clinical studies. And certainly from my own clinical experience, I find it's definitely more mycotic genital infections rather than UTIs that are an issue. But if your patient does happen to develop a, a UTI, again, we should just treat it as normal. Three days of trimethoprim or nitrofurantoin for women, seven days for men. Uh, and it tends to not recur. Of course, uh, we, there's always exceptions to the rule. So if your, your patient does have recurrent episodes of either thrush or UTI, then perhaps it is time to just call it a day on the class of drug and consider an alternative class of drug for that patient in question. And then the last issue that we advise we do need to, to give patients on SGLT2 inhibitors is sick day guidance. Uh, now, no drug is without harm, as I've said. Largely, the benefits outweigh the risk for SGLT2 inhibitors, but because of this rare risk of DKA, we need to tell patients to temporarily stop the SGLT2 inhibitor during any acute dehydrating illness, diarrhea or vomiting. And that's not because we're worried about acute kidney injury, quite the opposite. It's to prevent potential occurrence of diabetic ketoacidosis. But equally importantly, uh, we, we should tell patients to temporarily stop the SGLT2 inhibitors. We need to remind patients to restart their therapy after their illness has recovered. Because while six-day guidance has potential to do good for that patient, it also, of course, has potential to do harm if patients don't restart their therapies. And how would the effect of SGLT2 inhibitors on other body systems, such as the cardiovascular and renal systems, influence their use in patients with pre-existing conditions? SGLT2 inhibitors to me are very much the new generation of ACE inhibitors or ARBs. We're all well versed at using ACE inhibitors and ARBs along a range of clinical conditions. And that will increasingly be the norm for the use of SGLT2 inhibitors. Our cardiology colleagues, our renal colleagues, our diabetes and endocrine colleagues um, will increasingly uh, be using SGLT2 inhibitors uh, for patients with type 2 diabetes and coexisting comorbidities, such as atherosclerotic heart disease, uh, heart failure and CKD. Because the, the bottom line is, diabetes rarely occurs on its own, isn't it? Multimorbidity is now the norm. More of my patients have two conditions than one condition, and often uh, one of those conditions is indeed type 2 diabetes. It's estimated 40% of people living with uh, type 2 diabetes have some element of chronic kidney disease, either a reduction in EGFR or elevated protein in the urine. Uh, atherosclerotic disease is also very common alongside type 2 diabetes. 
So actually, if we're using um, SGLT2 inhibitors early on for the management of type 2 diabetes as our add-on therapy to metformin, which is largely my own clinical practice, perhaps uh, we might be able to prevent some of these complications occurring in the first place, the CKD, the heart failure, the atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So I think very soon, if not already, SGLT2 inhibitors will be the standard of care, really, for managing type 2 diabetes and significant comorbidities, such as, again, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, heart failure and CKD. And finally, do you have any other words of advice that you'd like to offer our audience on this topic? Prescribing of SGLT2 inhibitors is increasingly ubiquitous in primary and secondary care. But once again, I must stress, no drug is without harm. We must always balance the benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors against any potential harms. And now, whilst I firmly believe the benefits outweigh the risks for the majority of my patients, we must be aware there are certain individuals where that risk-benefit ratio may not be favourable uh, and of course, as always, our first principle of medicine is primum non nocere, first do no harm. So we need to constantly reassess that risk-benefit ratio for all of our patients living with type 2 diabetes and coexisting comorbidities. Thanks again for your time, Dr. Fernando. This brings us to the end of the episode. In summary, SGLT2 inhibitors are a class of antihyperglycemic agents that have more recently been found to also offer protection against outcomes such as hospitalisation for heart failure, cardiovascular disease events and progression of chronic kidney disease. They can therefore be relevant for many patient presentations, but may not be suitable for groups such as those with a history of DKA or at a higher risk of DKA. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't done so already, Please subscribe to the podcast on your favourite app or recommend us to your colleagues. You can also find links to all the references discussed today in the episode notes, as well as links to our social media accounts and website, where you can find more free and accredited CME content. Join us in two weeks for the next episode, when we'll be discussing the evidence around combining SGLT2 inhibitors with GLP-1 receptor agonists.